November 10, 1799. 30-year-old Napoleon Bonaparte paced the courtyard of France's Saint-Cloud Palace, eyeing his men warily. He had just been expelled from the Council of 500, one of the French Republic's legislative bodies. He was accused of tyranny and an attempt to seize power. Both of these claims were true. Napoleon and a cabal of conspirators were in the midst of a two-day coup against the corrupt government, one that was suddenly on the defensive. Here he was, skulking in the courtyard, when all of France's power resided inside the building. Even worse, Napoleon was getting nervous that his men would turn on him too. They could string him up on the spot, like so many other victims of the ongoing French Revolution. And then he'd never achieve what he knew was his destiny. Ruling all of France. And ideally, the whole world. Welcome to Dictators, a Spotify original from Parcast. I'm Richard. And I'm Kate. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. This season of Dictators, we're exploring the lives of leaders who conquered the world and brought empires to their knees. Today, we're looking into the life of one of the greatest military leaders in history, Napoleon Bonaparte. For the next three episodes, we'll take a deep dive into the life of France's revolutionary emperor. This week, we'll examine Napoleon's rise as a military leader and how he obtained power during the French Revolution. Next week, we'll explore Napoleon's reign amid constant threats from other European kingdoms and how victory emboldened Napoleon to create the first French Empire. We'll dive into the French Revolution right after this. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. A new true crime podcast from the team behind Up and Vanished. In 2016, adventurer Justin Alexander was invited on a trek by an Indian holy man. They headed to a spiritual ground in the Himalayan mountains, a place beyond civilization. The holy man returned and said nothing, but Justin was never seen again. What happened to him? Dive into our investigation in Status Untraced. Available now. Listen for free on Spotify. I'm Tanya Mosley. In 1987, my sister Anita vanished without a trace. Decades later, thanks to DNA, we found her. But that's only the beginning of the story. She Has a Name is a new audio documentary that explores the search for redemption, confronting trauma, and healing in the face of unimaginable loss. Subscribe now to Truth Be Told Presents She Has a Name, where every revelation brings us closer to the truth. By the mid-1780s, France was on the verge of bankruptcy. Between funding the American Revolution and an economic downturn at home, King Louis XVI needed to solve the financial crisis. 
he decided to call a meeting of the estates general. The French feudal system split the population into three classes known as estates. The first estate was the Catholic clergy, the second was the nobility, and the third estate was everyone else. At the top of all of them was the king, who ruled as an absolute monarch, with the nominal help of the estates general or a council representing each of the social classes, which had very limited power. It essentially served as an advisory board on matters like war and taxes. But by the time Louis called the Estates General Meeting in 1789, Europe was in the midst of the Age of Enlightenment. Throughout the 1700s, a new wave of philosophers developed ideas of individual liberty, fraternity, and human rights, all of which challenged the power of an absolute monarchy. Empowered by these Enlightenment ideals, delegates of the Third Estate claimed that the current financial crisis demonstrated that the feudal system was outdated. Since they comprised the majority of the population and paid the bulk of the taxes, they should have a say in the kingdom's laws, more of a say than the Estates General gave them. So they formed a council called the National Assembly, and Catholic delegates from the First Estate joined them soon after. They demanded that Louis XVI relinquish some of his powers to the people. Of course, Louis and his Austrian wife, Marie Antoinette, weren't too keen on giving up their power. For the next few years, the King and the National Assembly battled over governmental control. The revolution had begun. Violence erupted across France as insurgents overthrew local governments and peasants attacked the nobility. Fearing for their lives, many aristocrats fled to neighboring countries. The brutality took a turn for the worse in 1792. The citizen government believed French emigrants were plotting a counter-revolution with foreign help, so they declared war on Austria and Prussia. Meanwhile, tensions in Paris peaked with the arrest and forced abdications of King Louis and Queen Marie Antoinette in August 1792. The revolutionaries declared that France was now a republic. By autumn of the next year, King Louis and Marie Antoinette were executed by guillotine. However, in the meantime, the revolutionary violence only got worse. During the chaos, many radical political factions rose at the same time. In the summer of 1793, the left-wing extremist Jacobins took power, led by the tyrannical Maximilien Robespierre. That September, Robespierre initiated the Reign of Terror. For the next 10 months, France experienced mass executions of so-called enemies of the state. But by the summer of 1794, people were sick of Robespierre's wave of bloodshed and sent him to the guillotine. Robespierre's death left a power vacuum, so the revolutionaries tried a new approach to government, democracy. They created the Constitution of Year Three, which established a bicameral legislature and a five-man executive branch known as the Directory. But not everyone was in favor of the new government, especially royalists who hoped to restore the monarchy. In October 1795, these royalists took up arms in hopes of overthrowing the Directory before it could take power. 
However, the rebellion was put down by a young Corsican general named Napoleon Bonaparte. In stopping the coup, Napoleon became a hero among the French practically overnight. It was a strange turn of fate. As a boy, Napoleon never dreamed of becoming a great Frenchman, or even a Frenchman at all. Young Napoleon was a proud nationalist who sought independence from France. He was from Corsica, a Mediterranean island that was under French control. For centuries, Corsica was part of Italy, which was also where Napoleon's family originated. But in 1755, Corsican leader Pasquale Paoli declared that Corsica was independent and effectively took control of the island. Instead of arguing the point, Italy sold Corsica to France. And in 1768, the year before Napoleon was born, the French army invaded Corsica and forced Paoli into exile. His exile put Napoleon's family in immediate danger. Napoleon's father, Carlo, was Paoli's personal secretary. Luckily, Carlo swore his loyalty to the French, was able to keep his land, and even went on to represent Corsica in Paris. Napoleon continued to idolize Paoli, calling the Corsican nationalist one of the bravest men in modern Italy. But he also benefited from his father's defection. At the end of 1778, the nine-year-old Napoleon left his home for school in mainland France, where he received a far better education than most Corsicans. A few months later, Napoleon was accepted into the Royal Military School in Brienne-le-Chateau. At school, he was routinely bullied for his Corsican accent. But he was such a gifted student that when he graduated in 1784, he became the first Corsican invited to attend the prestigious École Royale Militaire Academy in Paris. Napoleon's time at Brienne and École Militaire were integral to his future identity and triumph on the battlefield. He read obsessively about the great generals of history, like Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar. He learned about their military strategies and how ambitious conquerors could leave their mark on history. Meanwhile, his schooling ingrained his belief that speed, surprise, mobility, and high morale, known as esprit de corps, were crucial. With knowledge of past leaders, these four principles, and an efficient artillery barrage, victory could be achieved. For Napoleon, going to battle wasn't a matter of if, but when. When the revolution broke out in the summer of 1789, 20-year-old Napoleon greeted it with open arms. Though he despised the unruly mobs, Napoleon was anti-clerical and anti-monarchy, values shared by the revolutionaries. But Napoleon still wasn't entirely interested in France's fate. Rather, he believed he could use the revolution to win Corsica its independence. Ironically, this put him directly at odds with his childhood hero, Pasquale Paoli. Since 1768, Pasquale Paoli had been living in London. When the revolution began, the new National Assembly granted amnesty to all exiles, and Paoli was able to return to Corsica in 1790. Napoleon had taken leave from active duty with the army to return to Corsica. 
which allowed him to greet his hero on the island. However, Pauli wasn't exactly thrilled to see Napoleon in Corsica. Pauli never forgot that Carlo Bonaparte collaborated with the French. And in his eyes, the sins of the father were the sins of the children. Pauli made it known that he wanted nothing to do with Napoleon or his brothers, who also dabbled in politics. Napoleon didn't help his cause by advocating for Corsica to embrace the revolution, because Pauli had no interest in using the National Assembly as allies. He wanted to side with the British, whom Napoleon despised. For the next few years, Napoleon and Pauli engaged in a political war for support of the Corsicans, and it nearly cost Napoleon his life. In February 1793, France sought to liberate the nearby Italian island of Sardinia from its Austria-aligned government. But instead of using the army, the French government wanted the invasion force to be the Corsican National Guard, with Napoleon leading the charge. However, Pasquale Paoli sabotaged the expedition. The revolutionary government ordered Paoli to supply 10,000 soldiers for Napoleon's invasion. Instead, Paoli gave Napoleon just 1,800 men. As a result, Napoleon was outnumbered and forced to retreat. But Paoli didn't stop there. He was determined to completely eliminate the influence of the whole Bonaparte family. Not long after Napoleon's ignoble retreat, Paoli's followers voted to ban Napoleon and his family from Corsica, describing them as, quote, born in the mud of despotism. Paoli's ploy worked. On June 11th, Napoleon and his family left the island for good. Two days later, they landed in the port city of Toulon, France, where Napoleon decided to cut his losses. His time as a Corsican nationalist was over. Instead, the 24-year-old soldier decided to follow in the footsteps of his two other heroes, Alexander the Great and Julius Caesar. Adjusting to life as a Frenchman was to be Napoleon's first step toward creating a legendary empire. Coming up, Napoleon sets out on a path to power. Hi, I'm Christine Schieffer. And I'm M. Schultz. We're the hosts of Rituals, the new Spotify original from Parcast. If you've heard our podcast and that's what we drink, you know we are no strangers to true crime and the paranormal. We're also into the occult uh, to chat about, not to join, but, you know, to, to learn and educate. <laughs> Every Monday on Rituals, we're journeying through mystifying stories of sorcery, alchemy, Satanism, and more, and trying to determine if the dark arts of the past impact us today. Like weather witches? Who were they? Or the Fountain of Youth? Address, please. <laughs> Don't forget about werewolf trials, Em. Objection, Christine. Let's not give too much away. And instead, let's tell everyone to follow our new podcast, Rituals, free and only on Spotify. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. 
Now back to the story. In June 1793, 24-year-old Napoleon Bonaparte and his family were forced to leave their native Corsica. Afterward, Napoleon accepted France as his adopted homeland. He had no trouble rejoining his artillery regiment. After King Louis XVI's execution, many officers fled France, and now the army needed men. Especially because the country was fighting battles on multiple fronts. France was still in the midst of a revolution and at war with Prussia and Austria. France's enemies also formed a coalition with Britain, Spain, and various Italian city-states. By defeating the French revolutionaries, this so-called First Coalition hoped to restore the monarchy. And they even had help from within France. In the summer of 1793, royalists in Toulon overthrew the ruling Jacobin radicals and handed the city over to the British Navy and their allies. In September, the French army laid siege to the city, but by October, this blockade was at a stalemate. Napoleon saw his chance to demonstrate his prowess. With the help of Jacobin allies, he got himself reassigned and placed in charge of the siege's artillery unit. Assessing the dismal situation, he devised a plan to capture a nearby British fort overlooking the Toulon Harbor. From there, the French cannons could bombard the British and drive them back into the Mediterranean. But Napoleon didn't just want to showcase his strategic acumen, he also wanted to demonstrate his bravery. When the time came to attack the fort, Napoleon led the charge personally. Personally and successfully. On December 19th, Napoleon and his men drove the British and their allies from Toulon, reclaiming it for the Republic. As a reward for his strategy and heroism, 24-year-old Napoleon was promoted to general. Just seven months later, in July 1794, the French Revolution took a new turn. Tired of bloodshed, a group of moderates called the Thermidorians overthrew the remaining Jacobins and ended the reign of terror. Napoleon was arrested and questioned about his Jacobin sympathies. It seemed his military career might be over just as it was getting started. However, thanks to a lack of evidence, he was saved from the guillotine and released. Still, Napoleon was hardly in the good graces of France's new leaders. For the next year, he toiled in inconsequential staff positions until fate intervened on his behalf. In the summer of 1795, the French Republic adopted the Constitution of Year Three, which established a legislature and the Directory. As expected, conservatives who longed for a return of the monarchy were not in favor of this government. In early October, a group of royalists planned to incite a rebellion and restore the crown before the Directory could be sworn into power. Their plan was to attack the National Convention at the Tuileries Palace in Paris on October 5th. Paul Barras, one of the men behind Robespierre's downfall and a member of the Directory, needed an experienced military leader to crush the revolt before it could begin. So he turned to the hero of Toulon, General Napoleon Bonaparte. As expected, 
On October 5th, between 25,000 and 30,000 royalists rushed through Paris and made their way to the Tuileries. However, they were greeted at the palace by Napoleon alongside 6,000 troops and artillery. Around 4 p.m., Napoleon allegedly ordered his men to give the rebels, quote, a whiff of grape shot. Grape shot was a type of cannonball, so this sounded like an order to fire. Moments later, Napoleon's cannons opened up on the rebellious Parisians. Even today, historians debate whether or not Napoleon actually gave this order to fire into the crowd. However, considering that Napoleon believed in using violence against citizens to establish order, he likely did. When the firing stopped, roughly 300 insurgent citizens were dead and the rebellion was squashed. Napoleon's actions saved the budding republic. With the internal threat suppressed, the directory counted on Napoleon to handle France's ongoing external threat, the First Coalition. In March 1796, Napoleon was given command of the Army of Italy, which was allied with France. The war with Austria and Britain was a few years in, and the majority of the fighting took place in western and southern Germany and Italy, which was overrun with Austrians. But according to Andrew Roberts, the Directory still considered Italy a sideshow. As such, the army that Napoleon inherited on March 26th was in poor condition. The soldiers lacked clothes, weapons and ammunition, and horses to transport their supplies. Worse yet, due to a lack of pay, there were rumors of mutiny. As Napoleon looked over his ragtag army, he knew that he could whip them into shape. But the first step was to win them over. In his first few weeks, Napoleon badgered the directory into sending clothes and food. Next, he convinced the French minister in Italy to take out a loan so that he could pay the men their missing wages. Meanwhile, he reorganized the infantry regiments and demoted incompetent officers. A firm believer in meritocracy, Napoleon refused to allow a bad officer to remain in his position of power. Learning from his heroes Julius Caesar and Alexander the Great, Napoleon modeled himself as the soldier's general. As such, he didn't lie to his troops about their dire situation. Napoleon spoke bluntly to his men. He didn't focus on the failures of the French government, but rather on the potential spoils of war. He famously said, quote, Soldiers, I want to lead you into the most fertile plains on earth. Rich provinces, great towns will be in your power. There you will find honor, glory, and riches. Napoleon didn't transform the army of Italy overnight, but he certainly improved their fighting ability with incredible speed. In April, less than a month after taking command, Napoleon led the invasion of Piedmont in northwestern Italy. His force was somewhere between 49,300 and 63,000 French troops, against roughly 80,000 Austrian and Piedmontese soldiers. In terms of pure numbers, he was at a disadvantage. But Napoleon Bonaparte was not about to let that stop him. 
On April 12th, Napoleon engaged the Austrians for the first time near the mountain town of Montonet. He easily routed them, killing 2,500 Austrians and losing only 800 Frenchmen. Before his enemies could catch their breath, Napoleon attacked again. On April 13th and 14th, he struck the retreating Austrian and Piedmontese forces. In the process, the two enemy armies had separated and Napoleon concentrated his forces on the Piedmontese. A week later, the French forces caused such devastation at the Battle of Mondovi that the Piedmontese called for peace the next day. The Piedmontese had been fighting the French for three years, and Napoleon knocked them out of the war in just two weeks. Napoleon turned his focus on the Austrian army, which was retreating toward Milan. Napoleon refused to make it easy on them. On May 10th, at the town of Lodi, French troops descended upon the Austrian rearguard, who had fortified a bridge over a shallow river. The rearguard hoped to slow the French on the banks of the water, but they were quickly overrun. The Battle of Lodi was a massive morale boost for Napoleon and his men. Reflecting on the fight, Napoleon wrote, I no longer regarded myself as a simple general, but as a man called upon to decide the fate of peoples. At that point was born the first spark of high ambition. Napoleon took that ambition and his highly enthusiastic troops and chased the Austrians further into northern Italy. At the beginning of June, Napoleon decided it would be advantageous to take hold of a garrison at Mantua. The siege of Mantua began on June 2nd, 1796, and lasted eight months. In that time, the Austrian army attempted to relieve the garrison four times. Each time, the French repelled them. During the fourth attempt, Napoleon's 22,000 troops went up against 28,000 Austrians in the two-day Battle of Rivoli. At Rivoli, Napoleon once again overwhelmed the enemy with speed and divided their forces. When the dust settled, 14,000 Austrians were dead, compared to only 5,000 of Napoleon's men. On February 2, 1797, two weeks after Rivoli, Mantua surrendered. For the next few months, Napoleon continued to sweep through northern Italy. He liberated towns from Austrian control and enacted local government reforms which spread France's revolutionary ideals across the land. Finally, in October 1797, Austria officially surrendered most of their control over the Italian peninsula and signed the Treaty of Campo Formio, which Napoleon negotiated himself. Though France technically remained at war with Britain, the war with Austria had come to an end. Napoleon's leadership was the decisive factor in ending the war. His reforms showed his men that he didn't just care for them, he was one of them. By crafting his image as a soldier for the soldiers, he secured their loyalty and gave them the victory they craved. This myth-making went beyond his army. Napoleon quickly mastered the use of propaganda to reach the citizens back home in Paris. First, by establishing a newspaper for the Army of Italy to herald his wartime successes. 
He wanted to make sure that the public never forgot him. Ironically, Napoleon didn't need to go to such lengths. Parisian papers already printed stories about his conquests. In fact, Napoleon's feats appeared more often in these newspapers than those of other French generals, much to their chagrin. Napoleon's growing popularity naturally put him in the crosshairs of the directory. They feared that Napoleon would become politically ambitious and turn into a contemporary Julius Caesar. They wanted to keep him out of sight with his next assignment. They didn't realize that they were moving the 28-year-old general one step closer toward total domination. Coming up, a new endeavor propels Napoleon to power. Now, back to the story. In 1797, 28-year-old General Napoleon Bonaparte turned the second-rate Army of Italy into an elite force that ended the War of the First Coalition. In doing so, Napoleon became a hero to the French people and a threat to the ruling council called the Directory. In order to thwart Napoleon's growing military ambitions, the Directory sent him as far away as they possibly could, to Egypt. However, this put Napoleon exactly where he wanted to be. For him, taking Egypt meant following in the footsteps of Julius Caesar, who invaded in 47 BCE, and Alexander the Great, who took it in 332 BCE. Beyond that, Napoleon believed he could use Egypt as the springboard to invade India. But while the Directory supported an invasion of India, they refused to let Napoleon lead it. They wanted to keep him busy with a simpler mission, dispel British influence in Egypt by establishing a French presence. On May 19, 1798, Napoleon sailed for Alexandria with one of the largest forces he'd ever commanded, 38,000 soldiers, 13,000 sailors, and 3,000 merchant marines. Knowing Napoleon was on the move, Britain sent their top admiral, Horatio Nelson, to find the French fleet and destroy it. But in spite of their huge numbers, Napoleon's armada managed to dodge Nelson's ships on three separate occasions. While evading the British, Napoleon made a quick detour to Malta, a strategically crucial island between Italy and North Africa. Within days, he took control of the island. And then moved on. On July 1st, the French fleet landed outside Alexandria. Within 24 hours, Napoleon controlled the ancient city founded by his hero, Alexander the Great. A week later, his armies set off for Egypt's capital, Cairo. The march through the desert was like nothing the French had ever encountered. The weather was excruciatingly hot, and the thick sand made walking difficult. At the same time, they were constantly fighting against mosquitoes, scorpions, and snakes. Still, even after traversing the desert, the French troops managed to occupy Cairo quickly. Napoleon's forces seemed unstoppable. While in Cairo, Napoleon enacted a series of reforms to end the feudal system, create new tax and postal systems, and erect new hospitals. He also went to great lengths to make sure he won the people over. 
not as a conqueror, but as a friend. For example, he respected Islam instead of abolishing it. Taking Cairo was the high point of Napoleon's tenure in Egypt. His success didn't last long. On August 1st, British Admiral Horatio Nelson finally found Napoleon's fleet at anchor and destroyed it. 1,700 French sailors died. Another 4,700 were wounded or imprisoned. Four ships were sunk and nine more were captured. In one fell swoop, the British not only crushed France's naval influence in the Mediterranean, but also cut Napoleon off from France. And there was an even greater threat on the horizon. Throughout 1798, a new European coalition formed to destroy the French Republic. Two of the main belligerents were Britain and Austria, France's old enemies. However, thanks to Napoleon's control of Malta and his footholds in Egypt, Russia and the Ottoman Empire joined their coalition as well. The Ottomans detested Napoleon for invading Egypt, while the Russian Tsar considered himself a kind of protectorate of Malta. Napoleon decided his best bet was to make the first move against his growing list of enemies. In February 1799, he took 13,000 troops north towards Syria with the hopes of crushing the Ottomans before they could invade Egypt. On March 3rd, his army made it to the gates of Jaffa, a port city in present-day Israel. After a four-day-long siege, Napoleon sent a messenger to Jaffa's governor demanding his surrender. But the governor responded by mounting the messenger's head on the city's wall. Napoleon retaliated with utter ruthlessness. That evening, his men breached the walls and took control of the city. They captured between 2,200 and 3,500 prisoners, and Napoleon had them all executed. After the massacre of Jaffa, Napoleon marched to the coastal city of Acre, the last real roadblock before reaching the bulk of the Ottoman army in Damascus. He believed that Acre would fall as quickly as Jaffa. He was sorely mistaken. With the War of the Second Coalition now in full swing, Acre received help from their ally, the British Royal Navy. As Napoleon besieged the ancient city, he was also forced to endure a relentless bombardment of British naval artillery. Finally, after about nine weeks and a dozen failed attacks, Napoleon realized taking control of Acre wasn't possible. On the evening of May 20th, he snuck away and slowly made his way back to Egypt. It was Napoleon's first major defeat as a general, but not all was lost. During the summer of 1799, France was under constant threat of a full-scale invasion by the Second Coalition. As such, the Republic needed its best general at home. So, on August 23, 1799, Napoleon quietly left Egypt, carefully avoiding the British Royal Navy scouring the Mediterranean. But when Napoleon returned to Paris in October 1799, he returned to a very different city. Once again, the revolution took a surprising turn, and Napoleon landed right in the middle of another coup d'etat. Despite constantly changing members, 
the directory had become corrupt and incompetent over its four-year existence. Elections were fraudulent, freedom of the press was restricted, and food prices had risen due to a lack of government intervention. Additionally, during the War of the Second Coalition, France lost territory it had gained in the First War. By the fall of 1799, the consensus was the Directory had to go. In October 1799, Emmanuel Cies, a new member of the Directory, decided he would overthrow the Council himself in order to save the Republic. He recruited Charles-Maurice de Talleyrand, a former foreign minister, Jean-Jacques Régis de Cambacérès, the justice minister, and Joseph Fouché, the minister of police. But these powerful men weren't enough. They also needed military support. The only way a coup would be seen as legitimate was with the backing of the army, which meant they needed Napoleon. There was just one small problem. CAS was not fond of Napoleon. But Talleyrand convinced CAS that Napoleon was the only general worthy of such a risky endeavor. Reluctantly, CAS agreed to bring Napoleon into the plan. It was called the Coup of 18 Brumaire, and the plot was to unfold in two stages over as many days. Stage one involved moving the two legislative councils, the elders and the 500, to Saint-Cloud, seven miles outside of Paris. For this to happen, the elders needed to be convinced that the government was under threat by Jacobins and the British. This would precipitate their move to the safety of Saint-Cloud, where Napoleon could be appointed commander to protect the councils. Stage two would commence the following day. Napoleon would approach both councils and announce that due to the national emergency, the directory was absolved. He would put himself, CAS, and Roger Ducot, another conspirator, in power as a triumvirate until new elections were organized. As a contingency plan, Napoleon had his younger brother, Lucien Bonaparte. Lucien was the newly elected president of the 500, so he could dissolve the council. CIS, meanwhile, believed he had enough pull with the Council of Elders to get them to accept the coup. Stage one of the plan went off without a hitch. On November 9th, or 18 Brumaire, Emmanuel CIS convinced the elders to move both councils to Saint-Cloud and get Napoleon assigned as commander of the district. However, the plot unraveled the following day on November 10th, when some members in both councils grew suspicious. Napoleon didn't help matters when he entered the Council of Elders. He gave a stammering speech, inspiring dissension among some of the elders. Things only got worse when Napoleon addressed the Council of 500. Hearing him speak, the 500 loudly balked at the obvious power grab. They called Napoleon a tyrant and an outlaw. Before long, the council was in a violent uproar, and Napoleon had to flee to the courtyard for safety, where his men understandably started to wonder if this coup was such a good idea after all. But then, Napoleon's brother Lucien exited the building. Legend has it that he put a dagger to Napoleon's chest and promised that he would personally kill his brother if Napoleon turned into a tyrant. 
Whether or not Lucien actually pulled a dagger on his brother is up for debate. But whatever Lucien said, it persuaded Napoleon's soldiers to follow through with the coup. And that was enough. With the manpower firmly on Napoleon's side, the conspirators dissolved the directory. Emmanuel Sieyès, Roger Ducot, and Napoleon Bonaparte were declared provisional leaders. The coup was complete. Or was it? At just 30 years old, Napoleon was one of the most powerful men in France. But he was not the most powerful man. He was just one of three men in charge. As a child, he wanted to be like Pasquale Pauli. But as an adult, with military victories across Europe and Egypt, he knew it was his destiny to become the next Julius Caesar or Alexander the Great. All he needed to do was eliminate CAS and Ducot. With them out of the way, Napoleon would hold all the power in France and become the nation's first emperor. Thanks for listening to Dictators. Next week, we'll explore Napoleon's reign over France and how he became the most powerful man in Europe. Among the many sources we used, we found Andrew Roberts' Napoleon and Philip Dwyer's Napoleon, The Path to Power extremely useful to our research. You can find all episodes of Dictators and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. We'll see you next time. Dictators is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max Cutler. Sound design by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Bruce Katovich. This episode of Dictators was written by Joe Guerra, with writing assistance by Tony Goodman, Andrew Messer, and Nora Battelle. Fact-checking by Adriana Romero, and research by Bradley Klein. Dictators stars Kate Leonard and Richard Rossner. Werewolves, witches, and Arthur Conan Doyle? Oh my! Sounds like fascinating topics to discuss on our new show, Rituals, Christine. You know what, Em? It sure does. Every Monday on Rituals, join us as we explore the evolution of spiritualism and the occult through stories, practices, and the impact on modern culture. If you've heard our podcast and that's why we drink, this is the perfect pairing for you. And if you haven't, go give us a try. Follow our Spotify original from Parcast, Rituals. Listen free only on Spotify. Spotify.